Well, hey everyone, you're tuned in to the Philippi Sermons Podcast. We're currently in a series through the book of Acts. If you want more information about our church, head over to philippichurchgp.com. There you can also find a link to our other Conversations podcasts, where we interview people and have Jesus-centered, Jesus-focused conversations. Hey, may the Lord bless you and speak to you as you take in His Word. Okay, if you have a Bible, open it up to Acts chapter 21. We are still trucking through the book of Acts. It's been a phenomenal study, and we are nearing uh, the end of the book as we get out of Paul's missionary journeys and get more into Paul's trials, where Paul begins to um, have to answer to the Roman courts, and we'll get into that starting next week. Uh, But today we're going to take a look at specifically uh, chapter 1, starting in verse 17. Let's just read it really quickly. We don't always do that, but let's read it so you get a feel kind of for what's going on, and then we'll, we'll dive into it a little bit more. Verse 17 of of chapter 21. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. And on the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed? They are zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they say or what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men the next day and he purified himself along with them and went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. So this is an interesting passage. This is an interesting text that we're going to look at. Uh, but by way of introduction, you know, it's, it's interesting. Jesus talked uh, about one particular issue Um, I don't know if I could say more than any other issue, but it was certainly up there at the top tier. And that particular issue was unity, the unity of the body of Christ. He spoke to it all the time. In fact, in John chapter 17, we have the longest really recorded prayer of uh, Jesus. And in that prayer, he prays um, over and over and over again that the church would be united that the church would be one, that they would not be uh, separated. So he places supreme uh, importance on that. But one thing we know is that the church hardly ever united. <laughs> it it's always seems to be split. It always seems to be breaking. It always seems to be fracturing. That united spirit that Jesus prayed for isn't always uh, the reality. You know, sometimes I feel like churches uh, feel kind of like sorting bins, We've talked about this before, but, you know, sorting bins, like, like 
Instead of people going to a church and that being their family, people go to the church that feels most like them. They go, if they're a a, a Pentecostal or charismatic personality, you go to Pentecostal charismatic churches where people sort of feel like you. And then then if you're a conservative type person, you go to a conservative type church. And if the church doesn't fit you, what do you do? You, You leave. It's, it's a, there's a fracturing that often happens there. It's like we think about church less like a family and we think about it more like buying a pair of jeans. I mean, when you buy a pair of jeans, what are you looking for? You're looking for something that fits you, something that doesn't show off your flaws, something that, that, that is suited to your body type. And when you, those jeans no longer fit, you throw them away and you get another pair of jeans. This is kind of the way we think about church oftentimes. And so for that reason, we have a lot of division uh, within the church. I remember I got a phone call probably within a month or two into planting this church. And it's just the kind of phone calls you laugh at later uh, from somebody that was trying to find a new church. Apparently they tried every church in town and, you know, every church in town is not doing it right. So they were calling us to see if we were going to be the one for them. Uh, and this guy asked me, you know, so tell me about your church. And I, I told him what we're doing and what our, uh, our vision is and kind of uh, what our flavor, if you will, you know, is. And, and he said, okay, well, uh, let me ask you this. How often do you talk about the end times? And I was like, well, we, we talk about it about as much as it comes up in the Bible. And he's like, well, how often is that? I'm like, I don't know, maybe once every couple months or so. He's like, it's not enough. <laughs> he's like, you should be talking about it every single week. You should be giving prophecy updates. And I was like, okay, you know, like, that's, that's cool. That's probably not going to be your thing here. I was like, here's a couple churches that I know talk about it all the time. He said, nope, used to go there. They don't talk about it enough, so I left. And I'm like, well, okay, you know, you're, you're probably not going to like our church. You're probably not going to find a church in town, so you might just have to, you know, not go anywhere. Uh, and I just, I, I left that conversation just thinking, man, that's kind of how people think. They think about church like, like it's a pair of jeans. Like if it doesn't fit me, then I just throw it away. If, if, it, if it doesn't fit me, then it must not be where I'm supposed to go. But in reality, that was not in any way what Jesus was praying for in John chapter 17. He wasn't praying that we would be united only with people that think like us, talk like us, act like us, like what we like. He was talking about unity between the 12 disciples. And the 12 disciples could not have been more different. If you remember the, the roster of the 12 disciples, you have a, a zealot who would have hated Romans. And then you have a tax collector who would have been essentially in bed with Rome, who was essentially working for Rome. These two people were together. You have all kinds of different temperaments. You have Peter, the charismatic, outgoing, kind of hot-tempered one. You have John, who seemed to be a little bit more even-tempered, a little bit um, maybe even more relational, right? And, And all of these different people were meant to be one. They were meant to be united. What Jesus didn't say was, hey, now each of you go find a church that fits you. He said, no, I want you to love each other. I want you to be one. Having said that, though, there certainly is a place to divide, isn't there? I mean, there certainly are times and moments as Christians where we need division. I think of Martin Luther and the Reformation. I think we all, as good Protestants, praise God uh, that Martin Luther separated himself from the apostate Catholic Church at that point that was not believing the gospel, not teaching grace alone, uh, by faith alone, in Christ alone, glory to God alone, scripture alone. And, and I think it was good that Martin Luther split. I think about Jesus with the Pharisees. Jesus didn't try to unite with the Pharisees. He knew that they were teaching a different message. There was very much a division. There's different divisions and rifts happening even in the last couple centuries. I know a few hundred years ago, or a couple hundred years ago, the North and Southern Baptists split. Why did they split? Because they were arguing over slavery. 
That was probably something that needed to be a stand. Stand probably needed to be taken. Right now, if you're following in the news, the Methodist denomination is fracturing in half right now over homosexuality and what the church's stance is uh, regarding homosexuality. Part of the church is saying that we should not affirm a homosexual lifestyle for Christians, and the other part is saying we should. And so the, the denomination is fracturing. So sometimes division is unavoidable. Sometimes division is unnecessary. But sometimes division is really a cloak for pride. Sometimes division is really a cloak for selfishness, isn't it? I mean, as a kid, I just remember church split after church split, people leaving, people leaving constantly. And it was always under the guise of some kind of a conviction, but usually under the surface, it was to do, more to do with pride. It was more to do with the fact that these pants don't fit me. And so I'm out. So I say all that to say this. Here's our question for today. Here's the question that I think our text actually answers. And that is, how do we know what issues merit division? And how do we know what issues call for laying down our own will? Setting aside maybe what we think is best. Put in another way, where's the line between compromising our convictions and preserving unity? So Paul, in this text, he finds himself in this interesting position where he's asked to do something that seems to conflict to some degree with what we know of Paul. And so for that reason, it's become a very contested passage in Scripture. Um, the commentators line up on both sides as to whether Paul was doing the right thing in saying yes to the suggestion of James and the elders in Jerusalem. Uh, for instance, Martin Luther who you mostly probably know, uh, believed that Paul was dead wrong. He also believed Paul was dead wrong in going to Jerusalem in the first place. He believed that James the apostle was actually not uh, really an apostle, and therefore the book of James shouldn't be um, considered canonical, and all those kinds of controversial things. But even modern commentators like James Boyce, James Montgomery Boyce, uh, G. Campbell Morgan, all these guys believe Paul was actually wrong and in error in saying yes to the suggestion of James. So we're going to look at that this morning. We're going to ask that question. Was Paul doing the right thing? And, and even more than that, what can we learn from Paul in the way that he made this decision about whether to divide or to defer? Okay, whether to divide or to defer. So let's dive into it. Chapter 21, verse 17. I know we read it, but let's take a closer look now. In verse 17, it says, When we had come to Jerusalem... The brothers received us gladly. Now, if you remember in our narrative, Paul has been heading towards Jerusalem for some time. He collected an offering from the Gentile churches as a sign of solidarity uh, and unity with the church of Jerusalem. Uh, and Paul has a lot riding on this. If you remember a couple weeks ago, he was warned multiple times from the prophet Agabus and others that if he went to Jerusalem, he was going to be arrested and potentially killed. So Paul knows that he's risking his life in coming to Jerusalem, but he has this offering that he gathered from all of these Gentile churches, and he's dying to deliver it himself. He wants to deliver it in person. Now, it's worth noting here that, that Paul understands there's massive potential here for a fracture to happen in the church. You may, may not realize this, but even within the first 20 to 30 years, the church had really grown exponentially, but it grew in two different directions. Uh, it grew out towards the Gentiles, and it drew, grew in towards the Jews. And so there was almost essentially uh, the, the, the tectonic plates of the church at that point could have easily split into two, a church of the Gentiles and a church of the Jews. 
Paul knows this, and Paul also knows that as he is the champion of the Gentile uh, faith, if you will, the Gentile church, that if he wanted to, he could easily fracture the thing in half and be the leader of the Gentile church. So coming to Jerusalem, Paul knows this. And I think that's largely one of the reasons that he's so adamant about delivering this uh, offering to the church of Jerusalem, to show them that, hey, we are all one body here. There's no reason to split. There's all kinds of racial tension between Jew and Gentile. That's why Paul writes to it so often in his epistles. Verse 18, now on the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. So Paul gets an audience with James and the elders. Now, who is James? This isn't James from the 12 disciples. This is James, the brother of Christ. Uh, James, who most likely wrote the book of James that we have in the New Testament. James, at this point, was kind of the apex figure, the apex leader of the Jerusalem church. And you can see that. Now, you might be asking, where's Peter? Where's John? Uh, At this point, most of the apostles had either been martyred or scattered. Okay, they were off doing ministry in other places. And James, the brother of Christ, sort of became the central figure and leader. Eusebius, the uh, ancient historian, said of James that he had knees like camel's knees because of all the time praying. I mean, he was a devout guy. He spent a lot of time on his knees. Uh, He deeply loved the Lord. And he led what was considered uh, the elders. A lot of people think that the elders in Jerusalem were modeled after the Sanhedrin. So it could mean that there was about 70 of them. So Paul comes in and gets an audience with James. Now, this isn't the first time these two men have met. This is probably the fifth time that they've met. But you can imagine the anticipation in Paul. What's going to happen in this meeting? How is this going to go? In verse 19, after greeting them, he related one by one, Paul does, he relates one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles, through his ministry. So Paul gives a missions update. He says, James, elders, here's what's been going on all throughout the ancient world. And you can imagine he would recount all kinds of stories that we've been reading about in the book of Acts. He would have recounted the story of Philippi and the Philippian jailer and Lydia. He would have recounted the story of Ephesus and the gospel in Corinth and maybe Mars Hill, how he was able to preach the gospel uh, in the Greek world um, time and time again. The miracles, the life change, the conversions. Paul recounts all of this amazing amazing material that had happened. And in doing so, he gives all the glory to God. I love that. One by one, the things that God had done. Soli Deo Gloria. Paul gives all the glory to the Lord. By the way, you know, this is true ministry. True ministry isn't coming up and saying, hey, look at what I've done. Look at what I'm doing. True ministry is just showing off the Father, showing off what he's done. You know, so oftentimes we get into a situation where we feel like we should minister to somebody and we don't know what to say. We don't feel like we have the words. But the reality is all we need to do is to show off God, to show off what he's done, show off his faithfulness. Tell him of times in your life where God has shown and proven himself faithful. And that's exactly what Paul does. And in doing so, he's encouraging and edifying the church of Jerusalem. Verse 20. And when they heard it, They glorified God. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed? They are zealous for the law. 
Okay, note that statement. So James responds to Paul's mission update by saying, have you noticed all of the amazing work that the Holy Spirit has also done here in Jerusalem? Thousands of believers, thousands of Jews had come to Christ in Jerusalem. The word for thousands could actually be myriads, which could be tens of thousands. So the church grew exponentially, not only out in the Gentile world, but within Judea, within Jerusalem. And so uh, Peter is saying, Paul, rejoice with me as well. God is doing a a miraculous work here in Jerusalem. But I want you to notice this phrase. James says to Paul, he says, they, being the, the, the Christians in Jerusalem, they are zealous for the law, zealous for the law. Now, any self-respecting New Testament Christian should stop at that phrase and go, what are you talking about, James? They're zealous for the law? I mean, shouldn't he be saying like, you know, they're zealous for Christ. They're zealous for the gospel. They're zealous for the Lord. But, but James's report is that they are zealous for the law. Okay, what's that all about? What is that all about? I think we need to ask the question, well, what does James mean by law? What does he mean by law? And I think this helps us kind of get into the nitty gritty of of how we should look at this passage and maybe kind of what Luke has in mind for us when we read it. What does James mean by zealous for the law? Okay, I want you to understand just a couple of things. We won't get into this because we've talked about it before. But understand the place that Paul is standing in in time. Okay, Uh, there has been a change in, I'm going to use a word, some of you may not like it, but a change of dispensations, a change of seasons, a change of economy, if you will, from the old covenant to the new covenant. Now, we, in 2020, we look back and we go, yeah, the law, that's all in the garbage. It's all about the new covenant now. And, and that's, that's true to some degree, but what we forget is that for thousands of years, the way that Jews honored and worshiped and, and showed covenant faithfulness to Yahweh was through the law. That was how they proved that they were actually following Yahweh was through the law. So in in this particular moment, this is about 20, 25 years perhaps um, after the death of Christ. And this time you have all of these Jews who grew up like Paul, raised on Torah, raised on Jewish law, worshiping Yahweh through faithfulness to the law. And then all of a sudden they realize that Messiah has come, that their debts have been paid, that the king has come and is risen but they're still Jews. They're Jewish Christians. They're Messianic Jews. And all of their, their, their background and their cultural history is worshiping God, worshiping Yahweh through the avenue of the Old Testament. You can split the law into a few different chunks in terms of the, what kind of laws there are. There's civil laws, which had to do with um, functioning as the theocracy. Uh, there's moral laws, which has to do with the nature of God. But then there was ceremonial laws. And ceremonial laws, they functioned for two things. One was to make atonement for sin. So the day of atonement, the lamb would be brought, and that was to make a temporary atonement for Israel. That is gone. That is done. That's put away. And I believe James and the elders and all of the Jewish Christians would believe that. But there's another dimension to the ceremonial law. And that was the ceremonial law of dedication. It was an avenue of worship. It was a way of expressing thankfulness. Not all of the offerings in the Old Testament were about atonement. Many of them were about expressing worship to God. 
So what James is saying to Paul is he's saying, Paul, all of these Jewish Christians have believed the gospel, accepted Jesus as their atonement, as their salvation, and they're still zealous to worship Jesus, but they're zealous to worship him through the ceremonial law, okay? And there's really not a massive problem with that. You know, God was really patient and gracious in the way that he phased out one covenant and phased in the next covenant. We tend to think of it as a hard break. If it was a hard break, then God would have destroyed the temple the day that Jesus died on the cross. That's not what happened. He destroyed the temple about 30 years after Jesus died on the cross. In fact, we see Paul himself and the early the apostles going into the temple. We see them participating in Jewish worship. It doesn't mean they were finding their atonement in those things. It just means that they were still worshiping God through that means. But God knew that the temple needed to go because it would become a stumbling block. It would pull them back to legalism. So in 70 AD, just like Jesus said, the temple was destroyed. And it's no accident that the book of Hebrews, which is written to Jewish Christians, was written right before that happened. So that Jews would understand that to worship Christ or to worship Yahweh now is through the avenue, through the covenant of Jesus, not through the Old Testament. So that's just a bit of, of, of background that you need to understand. Verse 21. And they've been told about you, Paul, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. Now, that's just a flat-out lie. Someone is out there preaching against Paul, trying to turn Jewish Christians against him, saying, Paul, the apostle, is out telling you not to circumcise your kids, Jews. He's telling you not to continue to worship the Lord through your traditions, through your, your, uh, you know, your, your Old Testament um, covenant avenues. He's, he's, he's out there telling them that. And that was just not true at all. Paul wasn't doing that in any way. Paul preached freedom from the law, but he didn't preach against the law. Okay, that's very clear in his epistles. He was preaching to Gentiles that they didn't have to receive something like circumcision to prove they were saved. They were free to not do that. But he wasn't preaching to Jews that they didn't have to circumcise their kids or shouldn't circumcise their kids or that it was wrong to circumcise their kids. Verse 22, what then is to be done, James says. So we have a problem here. The problem is, is that all of these Jewish Christians are skeptical of you, Paul. They think that you're here to, to tell them they should no longer do what they uh, believe they should do. They think that you're against them. What should we do about this? In verse 22, he says, they will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. Okay, now, if you're a prideful man, uh, which many of us are, and I certainly am. If you're a prideful man and you have a following and you have some clout and you have some say-so on things, and then another person comes and says, hey, do what we tell you. You gulp a little bit, right? I mean, I, I, I just think that, that Paul had every inclination, I would imagine, in his flesh to cringe a little bit when James, who's really his peer, who's leading sort of a separate movement of the same body of Christ, when James says, hey, do what we say. Paul had every opportunity, I believe, to be prideful here. Verse 23, do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men, purify yourself along with them, pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing on what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. So James says, I got this great idea. Here's Paul. Here's how we can show everybody that you're not against the law. 
What we'll do is we have four guys, four Jewish Christians who are about to take a Nazarite vow. A Nazarite vow, it didn't have to do with atonement. It was a way of expressing worship to Yahweh. It was a way of consecration, setting yourself apart. You let your hair grow long for a certain amount of time, and then you would come to the temple, you would shave that hair, you would offer it to the Lord, you would make an offering, and it was a way of setting yourself apart to the Lord for a particular amount of time. So James says, hey, we have four guys ready to do this. Why don't you go join them? In fact, why don't you pay for their haircut? Why don't you pay for their offering? And what that'll do is it'll show everyone around in a public setting that you're not against the law. You're not anti-Jewish law. Now, a lot of people read this and they just go, are you kidding me? I mean, Paul, don't do it, right? I mean, that's, that's giving in. That's giving up your freedom, right? Maybe, maybe. Keep going, verse 25. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. This was already what was agreed, by the way, um, by the Jerusalem council in regards to what the Gentile Christians should do. Then Paul took the men, stay, and he purified himself along with them. Paul says, okay, I'll do it. He went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. So Paul acquiesces. He says, okay, let's do it. He says, sure, whatever you say, James, whatever you say, elders. Now let's ask the question, was Paul right in doing this? I want you to consider just quickly a few things that we know to be true about Paul's character before we make a determination as to whether he was right in doing this. Just a few things about Paul. First of all, Paul was no coward, okay? He was not a coward. There's no way you could look at this text and be like, well, Paul just didn't want to man up and stand toe-to-toe with the Apostle James. You know, he was just afraid. That's, that just cannot possibly be true. Paul is constantly standing up for things. You see him rejecting his Pharisaical career. You see him confronting Peter to his face in front of a group of people. Uh, in the book of Galatians, you see him calling out the Philippian magistrates. Remember that in Acts chapter 16 when Philippi treats him poorly because they didn't realize he was a Roman citizen? He literally goes in public and takes him on face to face. Paul was not a coward. He walked into Mars Hill preaching Jesus, preaching the gospel. He was not afraid of the gospel. Romans 1.16, I am unashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God. Okay, so I, don't, I think we can rule that out. Okay, I think we can rule that out. He even split with his mentor, Barnabas. Remember, they couldn't agree about what to do with John Mark. The other thing about Paul, he did not, listen, he did not tolerate gospel compromise. He did not, would not, will not tolerate gospel compromise. He preached with every fiber of his being what we preach here, gospel centrality, which basically just means this, that we are saved only by Christ in his grace that is accessed by our faith. Okay, it is Christ, his atonement alone. Only are we saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. That is the only reason we're saved. Listen to his words in Galatians 2.15. We ourselves are Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners. Yet, we know that a person, listen, is not justified by works of the law, but through faith In Christ Jesus, Romans chapter seven, verse four, you also have died to the law 
through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. Okay, his point there is that you have literally died, you've literally died to the law. Here's a little bit more uh, intense one uh, that, that sometimes is even a little bit awkward. Uh, Paul, in writing to the Galatians, uh, in, in referring to the Judaizers that were telling them they had to be circumcised to be saved, he says in verse 12 of chapter 5, I wish you would emasculate yourselves. Cut it all off, man. You're driving me crazy. Paul was so adamant about gospel centrality. He in no way believed that the law in any function could possibly atone for anybody. We know that to be true. And he backed it up with his actions. We also know, on the other side of the coin, we also know that Paul had a deep respect for his Jewish cultural heritage. Though he was the apostle to the Gentiles, though he spent the majority of his time with with bacon-eating Gentiles, he was the Jew of Jews. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He studied under Rabbi Gamaliel. He was raised in a Jewish house. He probably had the equivalent of three doctoral degrees. He probably had the Torah and all of the ancient writings memorized. I mean, Paul was a Jewish man. He was a Jewish man, and he had a deep, abiding respect for Judaism. Now, when I say Judaism, don't think modern-day Judaism. Judaism, by that I mean the avenue of God's grace for Old Testament saints. Paul was born before the cross, and that was how he honored Yahweh, was that way. Listen to what he says in Romans 9, verse 1. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for, my, for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, he says. He, he had a deep affection for his Jewish brothers. Paul himself, earlier in the book, of his own decision, took a Nazarite vow. Remember earlier? He took a Nazarite vow. He was the one that wanted to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost. Why? Because he wanted to celebrate Pentecost. This is a Jewish holiday. Paul was a Jewish man. He respected and, and saw the avenues of Judaism in, in, the, in the, the, the Old Covenant sense as a way of worshiping and honoring God. He didn't see the New and Old Covenant as enemies. He saw it as one redemptive work in two parts. That was how he viewed it. He saw the faith and practices of his fathers as to be something as to be respected and is to be cherished. The other thing you need to see about Paul is that he had a missionary mindset. He had a missionary mindset. Listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 9, 19. And you're familiar with this passage. He says, for though I am free from all, okay, I'm a slave to no one but Christ, right? For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant of, to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. When he says under the law, he's talking about Jews. He's saying, I became a Gentile to the Gentiles. I became a Jew to the Jews, not because I had to. I am a free man. I am slave only to Jesus Christ, bondservant servant only to Christ, but I make myself a slave to a Gentile or to a Jew if it means I can reach them with the gospel. He was a missionary. Paul was the missionary. He was all about seeing people come to Christ and he would do whatever it took short of compromising his faith. The commentator F.F. Bruce comments, he says, whether Paul was uh, was wise in doing this 
may well be doubted, but he cannot be fairly charged with a compromise of his own gospel principles. On contrary, he was acting, listen, in strict accordance with his own stated policy. And that policy being what we just read in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. So this moment comes where James asks him to do something that we might look at and go, well, isn't that a compromise, Paul? And Paul would say, no, I'm free to do that. I am free to do that. I will become a Jew to save the Jews, and I will become a Gentile to save the Gentiles. So my view, personally, is that Paul had every right to take part in this Nazarite vow, that Paul cared for the unity of the church. Now, whether it was right or whether it was wrong, I don't know that we can say totally, but I think that Paul was not a man to compromise his convictions. It wasn't beyond him. He wasn't Christ. But I certainly think we can learn from his decision, his decision to humbly lay down his rights, his pride, and choose to do what was best for the unity of the church. Now, turning towards application here. In the beginning, I asked the question, how do we decide when to do, and how do we decide when to say defer? And that, that's hard. I mean, I've, I've had a lot of moments in my life, especially in ministry, especially working for churches, where something rubbed me wrong about leadership, about the way things were done or not being done, and I constantly had to wrestle with, is this a divide moment, or is this a Sam, shut up, submit, and just be humble? I mean, I just constantly wrestle. I've worked at churches before where they just did things that I just thought were stupid. And I'm like, do I leave? Do I stay? What do I do? We need help thinking about this. And I think that there's some principles here that we can learn from the way Paul addresses this decision in terms of how we uh, make our decisions to divide or, or to defer. So just note quick, three quick things and we'll finish. And we'll go through these quickly. Three quick things regarding Paul's decision. And these are things that Paul knew. Okay? Three, three things that Paul knew that we need to think of and consider. Number one, Paul knew the depth of our spiritual unity. He knew the depth of our spiritual unity. Paul did not see Christians probably in the exact way that we see them in the Western United States. Uh, there's this term, I use it all the time. I caught myself using it the other day. Uh, and I know what I mean by it, but it's a term... It's, I have a personal relationship, a personal relationship. Now, I do have a personal relationship. Jesus, I have a personal relationship with him, and my relationship with him is personal. But the problem with that is it makes it sound like your faith is something that is just for you, and it doesn't connect to anyone else. That's not the way that Jesus talked about the church. It's not the way that the New Testament authors talked about the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, what does Paul say? He says that we are part of a body, a body that has many members, but all those members are ultimately one body. The way that Paul thought about his faith was not just his personal relationship. He knew that he was connected in a deep and abiding and eternal way with other believers, so much so that to sever that would be so costly. He looked at this Jewish church and this Gentile church, the two of them, and he said, at all costs, we must keep the unity of this because this is one body. The cost of seeing two things fused together 
uh, break apart. I think of Siamese twins, right? They have to make this decision in their life. Are we going to go through the procedure of separating? Because they literally share and sometimes even share organs and share things. I mean, it's crazy. They have to make a decision. Are we going to separate? The problem in the West is, again, we think about leaving a church like we think about leaving a bad Yelp review on a burger joint. We think about leaving a church like we think about throwing a pair of pants out that doesn't fit us anymore. That's not how Paul thought about the church. He thought about it like a living, connected, united, eternal, eternally fused body of different parts. And he at all costs would fight to keep that unity. We live in a very individualistic culture. And for that reason, sometimes we forget that we are connected at a supernatural level. We are one body and nothing should make us sicker than the thought of splitting, speaking ill of each other, causing divisions. Paul understood this, so he fought for unity. The second thing that Paul knew was he knew that true humility often means laying down what you want for what others need. He knew that true humility often means laying down what you want for what others need. I said this earlier, but I'll say it again. I think that nine out of ten times, church splits, church fractures are always cloaked in some kind of a a deep conviction. But in reality, under the surface, it's pride, usually. There are times where there are deep conviction and 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 division is necessary. But oftentimes, it's insecurity, selfishness, it's pride. It's what I want, what I want. I don't like the way you spoke to me. I don't like what you're asking me. I don't like the way you're doing things. I don't like the music. I don't like the style. I don't like the direction. These are oftentimes... What happens now? I want you to put yourself in Paul's shoes in this particular moment for just a minute. Paul did everything imaginable to show his solidarity and unity with Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. He literally spent years collecting an offering to help them out. And now he's finally here to deliver it. And what do they tell him? Hey, by the way, everyone thinks that you're a complete phony. (laughs) By the way, everyone thinks that you're a heretic. Imagine how insulting that would be to Paul. And imagine how easy it would be for him to to, to pull out his bravado and go, you know what? I have a larger following than you do, James. So, you know, I don't really care what you think. I don't really care what you say. I don't really care what everyone else says. I'm going to take my Gentile church, take my ball, and we're going to go home. Boom, two churches. We would have had it right away. Within the first century, we would have had the first church split. Paul had every imaginable avenue to do that. That's not what he does. It's not what he does. He submits himself to the leadership, whether they be right or whether they be wrong. He doesn't, he doesn't give up his convictions. He doesn't compromise. But what he does do is he humbly sets aside what he would maybe have desired to do for what is best for the unity of the church. Listen, the best leaders are humble enough to be led. The sign of a good leader is not if you're the loudest one in the room. The sign of a good leader is not if you're the one that always wants their way. The sign of a good leader is if you are willing to not get your way sometimes. If you are willing to set aside your desires for the greater good. And thirdly, and this hopefully will get a little bit more practical for you, the third thing Paul knew was how to keep the main thing the main thing. He knew how to keep the main thing the main thing. Now listen, There's two things as Christians that should never change. There's two things that should never change, and there's one thing that 
will change, should change, and does change. The two things that should never change, write them down, is the message of Jesus and the mission. Those things never change. The thing that should change, does change, will change, is the methods. Methods are going to change. But the message of Jesus, his word, the gospel, his truth, that's why we, we go to war over theology, important theology, because the message of Christ stays the same. It doesn't change throughout the years. The gospel is the gospel is the gospel. And people come along oftentimes and they say, you know, we need to update the gospel. You know, like your phone updates every couple months or, you know, maybe like your, your, uh, your decor in your house gets a little dated and you need to bring it up to speed. People think, you know, we need to update the gospel. It's a little dated. It's a little uninclusive. It's a little rigid. It's a little narrow-minded. So let's update the gospel. We don't do that. We never do that. Ever. The gospel is the gospel is the gospel. The message of Jesus is as pertinent and as contextually accurate and as helpful now as it's ever been. The other thing we don't change is the mission of Jesus. We don't change it. The mission is the mission is the mission. What is the mission? Make disciples. That's the mission. And people have come along throughout the years and said, you know, the mission needs a little updating. I think we should focus more on social justice. I think that should be all we care about. Who cares about whether we preach the gospel? Who cares about whether we tell people the truth? Let's just do good things. The social gospel comes along. Seeker-friendly movement comes along and says, you know, forget making disciples. Let's just make converts. That's way easier. Making converts is great. We can hold a big tent revival. People get saved. And then that's not the mission. The mission is to make disciples. That takes a lifetime. Conversion is part of that. Social justice is part of that. The mission is to make disciples. So the mission and the message stay the same, but what changes? The methods. The methods change. And the problem and the reason we have so many church splits is because people can't handle methods changing. They say, oh, I remember back in the Jesus movement, man, and the way that Chuck taught and the way that he did it and how he did it and all the way that, that's the way it's supposed to be because it was so fruitful. And then young guys like me come along and go, yeah, that was great then, but we live in 2020. This is a different world. Same gospel, same mission, different method. And people go, no, 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 no. It has to be the same way. We have to sing the hymns, hymns only. In 30 years, I'm going to be the guy that's like, no, I want to sing these songs. And someone's going to say those are old and dated. The methods change. They change. They always change. And that's okay. We need to embrace that. We need to invite that. We need to accept that. Most church splits are not because of a mission problem or a message problem. They're because of a method problem. I don't like that the emphasis is this. I don't like the type of music. I don't like that this is what they're focusing on. I don't, whatever it is. That's all methods. We've got to learn to be humble when we deal with these things. How we organize, how we communicate, how we express worship, how we care for each other, how we learn, how we make disciples. We need to be doing all these things, but how we do them is going to change. Let them change. The point for Paul was not whether or not uh, to worship through a Nazarite vow or, or not. The point was, is it authentic? Like Jesus told the Samaritan woman, one day will come when we won't worship on this hill or on that hill. We will worship in spirit and in truth. Paul had no problem worshiping God through a Nazarite vow. He had no problem worshiping God maybe through eating a hamburger. I don't know with bacon. I don't know. But regardless, his point was the heart. Now listen to this, and you might even write this down. Unity comes through contextualization, not colonization. Unity comes through contextualization, not colonization. Let me 
define my terms. Okay, contextualization means you take something and you let it continue to be the same truth it is, but you just express it in a way that's understandable. So if I'm going down to Mexico and I take the gospel, I speak it in Mexican. That uh, I speak in Spanish, Mexican. Wow, stupid. We'll cut that out. Uh, if I speak it in in, in 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 Spanish, that's contextualization. If I use analogies that that have to do with something a culture understands, that's contextualization. Colonization is what uh, you know the uh, what, what Britain did years back. They would go and they would import their culture into a, a different foreign place. They would get them to dress like them, play their music, do their arts, think the way they thought, talk the way they talked. That's colonization. The gospel has no place with colonization. We don't go to Africa or China to do missions in order to make them look like the Western Church. God forbid. Okay, you go to you go to Uganda, man, and they're going to dance. And they're going to they're gonna sing differently than we do. They're going to express worship differently. Same God, same gospel. We would never go there and say, no, you need to sing the songs we sing the way we sing them. You need to, to be like us. That's colonization. The problem is, and a lot of the problem with church splits is that people come into churches with the idea of colonizing that church. Oh, I used to go to this great church back east, and then I moved out to Grants Pass. I'm going to make this church like the one I liked then. I'm going to colonize it. I'm going to make them do the things that I think they need to do. It's contextualization, not colonization. Now, let me just end with one practical tool, and we'll be done. Gary Brashears, uh, who's the um, theology director at Western Seminary up in Portland, um, he has a really helpful paradigm for how to sort things. And when you are frustrated by something or you're feeling the temptation to divide, which sometimes you should— you need, to, you need to ask yourself, where does, these, where does this particular issue fall into these four categories? Here's the four categories. There are issues that we die for, number one. There are issues that we divide for, issues that we debate for, and issues that we decide for. Let me break those down. So number one, die for, probably self-explanatory. These are the issues that you go to the stake for. Like, the uh, Trinity, like Christ alone, the five solas, faith alone, grace alone. I mean, th- these are things that like, man, I will literally give my life up for this truth. If anybody says you're not allowed to preach the gospel, we give our life for that. These are die for issues, okay? The second category are divide for issues, Divide for issues. These are issues that it doesn't necessarily mean you're not a Christian if you don't believe them, but it means I'm probably not going to do ministry with you. I got a lot of brothers and sisters and other denominations that I that I love and respect, but um, our differences in theology are such that I just don't know that I could really join or be part of or associate myself with their network. Uh, so those are divide for issues. Uh, those, are, those are important things. I think what I talked about earlier with the, the Methodists, uh, you know, splitting in half over um, the decision as to whether affirm a homosexual lifestyle, that's probably a division that needs to happen. It's probably a division that needs to happen. Now, I'm not saying that everybody that believes um, that, that, that uh, homosexuality should be affirmed isn't a Christian, but they're wrong, okay? I, I'm saying that, that there's, a, there's a divide there that probably needs to happen. The third category is debate for debate for. Okay, these are issues that we debate over, we talk about. Okay, uh, I'll give you the big three. Okay, eschatology, end times. People leaving church over your view on eschatology, I think is ridiculous. 
You think it's mid-trib rapture? You think it's pre-trib rapture? You think it's amillennial, post-millennial, pre-millennial? Some of you guys are like, what the heck are you even talking about? Exactly, okay? It doesn't, it, I'm not gonna say it doesn't matter. It, it matters, we should talk about it, it matters. But you don't break ties over it. Another one would be pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit. The spiritual gifts, are they for today? Are they not? Are they, have they ceased? Have they continued? Let's debate over it, let's talk about it, it's important. Don't split over it. Don't leave this church because you feel like I should be speaking in tongues right now. Like, don't leave. That's stupid. Okay, another one would be Calvinism and Arminianism. We should debate over it. Is God fully sovereign in his election or does man have responsibility? Let's talk about it. Don't leave over it. That's stupid, okay? It's not any, anything that anyone has figured out perfectly. It's something we got to talk about, debate over. It's important, but it's not something we divide over. And then here's the last, last category, and that is decide for. In other words, have an opinion and then just be quiet, okay? Uh, I really think that we should not have pews. We should have chairs. Okay, you can think that, but just don't talk about it. You know, I really think that, uh, you know, Sam needs a different haircut. Okay, that's fine. You know, you can think that, but just, I don't care. Like, don't tell me, you know? Um, it's really not a big deal. I mean, these, these are just petty methodology, things that, that we really don't even, they're not even worth debating over. They're just things. Have an opinion. Everybody has one and they all stink. Everybody has an opinion. Just keep it to yourself. Uh, I mean, you, you can tell people if you want, but I'm just saying there's a category of things that we don't need to divide over. We don't even need to debate over. Now, hopefully that's helpful for you. So, so when something rubs you the wrong way, and it, there may be a very good reason, I want you to ask yourself, where, where does that fall into this category? If it's a die for, you better bring it up. If it's a divide for, you better bring it up. If it's a debate over, bring it up, but bring it up civilly. And if it's a de decide for, have your opinion. If someone asks you, let them know. Now, having said that, I just want to end on just a pastoral note. Okay, uh, I'm not trying to be a prophet here, but I have a feeling over the next three months, things are going to get a little tense. They're going to get tense because different churches are taking different methodology, different philosophy as to how we should be reacting to the government's, some might call it an overreach, some might just call it the government's um, actions. Okay, so different churches, some churches right now in California, 3,000 churches literally have decided to completely um, ignore the order and do sort of a civil disobedience thing and continue to meet anyways. Some churches are deciding not to do that. Um, they're deciding to, to, to honor what the government is asking. Um, and so here's my plea to you. Regardless of what different churches do, remember that you're one family. Remember that you're one family. Regardless of what this church decides to do, remember that we're one family. Remember that, that at the end of the day, this is not a die-for issue, okay? It's not a die-for issue. Um, so have grace. Uh, and I want to just let you guys know that within the next couple of days, probably Tuesday, we're going to be rolling out our plan for the next three months, uh, hopefully the next three months, uh, based on what Kate Brown has um, you know, spoken a couple days ago in terms of what we're going to be able to do as a church. So, so we have some really exciting things to announce. I think some really good things uh, that are going to be really good for us in church, and we'll announce those. And I hope that, that if we are not doing exactly what you maybe were hoping that we would do, um, that you'll be gracious uh, and that we can be brothers and sisters through this hard time. The last thing we need to do is be separated right now as Christians. We need to be united. We don't need to fall into party lines. We need to be one kingdom of brothers and sisters. So I hope this passage 
uh, spoke to you. I would love to hear what you think, by the way. If you want to post thoughts in the comments on Facebook or YouTube, if you want to post thoughts on our Slack community, uh, but I'd love to know uh, your thoughts, not on what I just said, but about Paul and what he just did um, in the text. And uh, so, yeah, let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you minister to our hearts, Lord. We pray that we could be united uh, as a body, Lord, that we could love each other, and that, Lord Jesus, like you said, uh, that the, the world would know we are Christians by our love for one another, Lord, the way that we care for each other. Um, so, Father, in these turbulent times, we pray against polarization. We pray against um, splits. We just pray, Lord, that we would be united on the gospel, that we would be resolved for what matters, the glory of you, Christ. Uh, and, Lord, we just love you and invite you. In Jesus' name. Amen.